I don't think many would argue with me if I was to, to uh, make the statement, but the world is a messy place. Social conventions are changing. And the gap between social norms that are upheld by the church and that which is shaped and affirmed or um, practised in the wider society seems to be getting bigger by the day. The social world in which we live is equally messy. All sorts of different arrangements. And we ask a question, is someone married or not? You'll sort of say, well, it depends. It's no longer as clear as it used to be. And that was all equally messy, in fact, even more so in the first century, in the time where the earliest churches were beginning to gather together and ask the questions, what does it mean for us to live rightly as followers of Jesus? The passage that we have before us this week, as we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is challenging. It deals with a reality that we would now review as uh, hideous, and as morally repugnant, that of slavery. We all know that context is important, and it is especially so when we come to this passage this morning. So let me give my, where I'm heading with it up front, that as Paul speaks into the reality of slavery in the world of his day, he doesn't seek to deconstruct that institution of slavery, but he does sow some seeds of significant social transformation. Some seeds that took root very quickly and some longer-term seeds that eventually saw the overthrow of slavery. We have been talking about, uh, in this part of Ephesians, there we go, um, the household unit. So Paul has been addressing, giving instruction to what does it mean to live in this household unit within the Greek and Roman world. The household is quite different to anything that we have experienced. It was a a major building block or element of society. Within a household, there's not just the biological family, not just those who are extended family across different generations, not just those who are part of the wider family um, through nephews and nieces and the, uh, through the father's line, but all those who contribute to the life, the well-being, and all who serve within that household are gathered together in a unit as the household, including slaves. And that, that is a given in terms of Paul's world. Paul speaks into it as a number of other um, philosophers and others as to what makes for a good household. And he's, we need to take it as a package, not just husbands and wives, as though it's a separate group, and then children and, and their fathers as another group and, house, and uh, slaves as another. They are, all are interconnected as one. I mentioned last week that marriage in the... Uh, ancient world, the Roman world, is very different to what we describe as marriage today. Marriage wasn't controlled by a a state authority. To be married in Australia legally or formally is according to the Marriage Act of 1961 as amended from time to time. And those who are authorised to be able to conduct and officiate in a marriage and it ends up with certificates and uh, it is registered in a a marriage office, marriage, births, deaths and marriages. Nothing like that existed in the Roman world. 
For those who had legal status, marriage was an exchange of contracts where the paterfamilias, the, the male head of a family, would get together with uh, an aspiring uh, husband and their, his household and they would come to contractual agreements as to what this marriage would look like and what, the, uh, what property would stay with the wife and who would retain control. In many, the, the male head of that whole family tribe um, retained control of the daughter's or the female's inheritance and her property and major decisions and could decide to, uh, to dissolve that marriage. In other cases, that, uh, that authority was handed over to the husband. The authority of the father, the pater familias, as I mentioned last week, um, is hard to overstate. Um, it was a control over life and death, of not just of the, the children as to whether they would be accepted by a family upon their birth or whether they would be rejected and exposed, whether they would be put in a location where someone else could take them and raise them for the purposes of them being sold as a, as a slave. Um, it was an extraordinary sense of every decision and all aspects of property was owned by the one male head of the family um, who may be the father or grandfather or you could paraphrase it if you want to know the culture that we're talking about is the godfather. You know in the movies the godfather. When the godfather speaks, you must obey. And to not do so is not only shameful, it will come with consequences. That is the legal authority of the pater familias in this world. It had a, a legal status known as the patria potestas, the authority over the entire household unit. Could a wife or could children have their own property, their own possessions, only if the father allowed it? And even technically it was the father's, it was his, the pater familias, but may give uh, provision for what was called a peculium. It was actually able to have their own account that they could use if it was agreeable to the father. So that world is very different to what we describe as marriage today. Though sadly, some elements of that uh, patriarchal power and control and coercion is echoed um, with uh, very sad consequences. We also need to recognise that relationship between the father and the children is not what we often assume when we read these verses. When it says, children, obey your parents, we immediately think of the young ones who are still under our control, hopefully. Maybe not, but um, so long as we can manage to say, look, uh, obey them. But Paul's talking about offspring, including adult, male, uh, adult offspring. So that re responsibility to obey the parents and to obey the the father in particular, is continues regardless of your age. There's no leaving home and I'm now my free person. So we have, we, there's a lot of things that we need to sort of step back and understand that context. And when it comes to slavery, even more so. This was a world that was very different from anything that um, certainly we would experience. It has some parallels to some aspects of modern slavery, which sadly is very prevalent but actually is quite different from what would be described as the uh, modern forms of slavery in um, North America and the Caribbean through North African and Caribbean slaves. That was racially based. And ancient slavery was not racially 
based. It was based on social status or standing. The two main dynamics that shaped the, the social world that, was, that upheld the city and the wider entity are power and status. Power meant everything, and here power went to the pater familias, or in the Roman Empire, it then went to the, the emperor who claimed to be the pater familias of, of the whole people. Status was the capacity to influence and to use that power in some way. Now, I'm going to come back to those two dynamics when we come and look at what Paul has to say. But there's a difference between the power that comes because of your social rank and how you choose to use it. And that was reflected in the experience of slaves. Um, Slavery wasn't defined by the roles. A lot of slaves did the similar things that freed people also did. But it was their legal standing that they were actually not recognised as of any legal entity. They were non-people. One scholar describes being a slave as experiencing social death. We see some echoes of that in the life of servants in Victorian England. You know, you might have seen it in Upstairs, Downstairs or Downton Abbey or those different types of narratives. Servants were trained that if the, the masters entered the room, servants were to turn and face the wall and lower their eyes not even to have eye contact, as if they were not there. And so the aristocracy, the highest status people, would come into the room as if the servants did not even exist. That was the world of ancient slaves. Many people regarded them as less than fully human, less educated, less able, and uh, not worth responding to or having high expectations of. The experience of a slave was very, uh, a whole spectrum of experience. At the, uh, the most awful end, uh, those who worked in mines could have a life expectancy of just months. At the other end of the spectrum, some slaves under good masters flourished. They were cared for, they were nurtured, they were educated, they were given skills, and they were given pathways to lead to being freed and often could uh, achieve their... Uh, their manumission, they could come out from being a slave to being a freed person. And I'll come back to that a little bit later. So there's a whole range of experiences between what it meant to be under a harsh master or to be a benevolent uh, and kind master. But the pressure, the social pressure on masters was don't be too kind or gentle on your slaves because at the end of the day they need to fear you. And if they don't fear you, they may get ideas and rise up against them like they did with Spartacus. So there's a lot of social pressure on masters to keep slaves in their place because if you're too generous and kind to them, my slaves might get expectations and that's the last thing they want. So it's into that world that Paul is speaking. I need to name within this that the value of a slave was a financial value transaction. They were possession amongst other possessions owned by the master. And their value depended on their capacity to uh, to either generate income or to be of uh, benefit to the household. Healthy young male slaves were high value. Female slaves, less so. 
and older female slaves were particularly vulnerable and regarded as of, they're just a hindrance. We have to feed them, but they're not producing much. So female slaves were tended to be right down at that more severe, vulnerable uh, end of that spectrum of experience. It also included female slaves only being of value to the extent to which they would service the needs of the master, by which I mean the sexual needs of the master, or of uh, being put out to prostitution and to earn an income in that way. And that was widespread amongst the ancient world. Often the female slaves in a household were tasked with being the entertainers in those drinking parties, to dance, to sing, to, to do drama, to perform different types of uh, actions and, and uh, to service those who were the guests of the master. It's a pretty awful world. What does it happen when people come to Christ and that is the world in which they are living? Is the question that is the, uh, Paul begins to address. Now we can see for Jewish, those who have been shaped by the Jewish background, including Paul, the Old Testament law puts some safeguards around the life of slaves. If you had a slave for six years, you were to release them on the seventh year. That's the passage we just had. And not only were you to release them, but you also to give them some resources so that they wouldn't just go out empty-handed but have capacity to set up a home for themselves. There's a lot of protections and provisions around slaves in Old Testament scripture. None of that appeared in the Greek and Roman version of it, where many people, that was their life and that was one of despair. There was no pathway for them out of it. So where does Paul go in his response? Well, Paul says, first of all, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, these are difficult words. Paul does not look at slavery and view it as a moral question. He doesn't argue over this whole social institution of slavery, which is a, a major part of the ancient economy which is all that has been known from generation to generation, should be done away with. We would now challenge that, looking back on it. But that's coming with our expectations and being a very different space. At this time, this early Christian movement was a tiny speck in the population of a wider world. If we were, as a church, fine, I mean, we're not a speck in the population today, but we are a minority group in the wider community, what success do we as a church have in taking on and saying these things should be dismantled? It's a long project to advocate for deconstructing some of those practices. Not to say it shouldn't be done. But Paul does give some seeds in this passage which actually are powerful seeds, fruitful seeds, and transformative seeds. Paul goes on, says, Obey your masters, obey them, not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Paul gives these slaves a new identity. He gives them a new master. And that master is a good, loving and benevolent master who provides and serves. Let me just step back for a moment and point the context of these words of Paul. 
the early house church, the early Christian movement, sorry, met in homes. But the homes weren't just a venue. It wasn't just like a house church as we might know it from a home group or something of that nature. They would be hosted by the whole um, household would actually host the church in that context. And in hosting it, every member of the household would participate. They would attend the church community as a household group. The slaves would attend the church as equal members of the church community. We'll come back to that a little bit later in conclusion. So slaves are being addressed by Paul directly. He's not saying, slaves, you're around the corners, you should be, thank you for serving us, we'll get on with the church. The slaves are part of the church family and he is addressing them and speaking to them. The slaves come forward to take part in the Lord's Supper. They share the meal alongside their masters as fellow members of that church community. And Paul recognises that slaves have agency. They are able to hear and to respond and to take responsibility for it. And he's telling them about a new identity within a new household, which will come back, it's where we'll conclude. Paul then continues with another profound reshaping of this social world. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, masters weren't known for rewarding their slave. They were required to do what they did because they were the possession of the master. Some masters did reward slaves and actually uh, even adopted them into the family at some, in some circumstances. They were the good masters. Many others thought that we need to keep uh, slaves lean and hungry. But Paul was saying that your greater master, our Lord, is seeing everything you do and will reward you for that. God is not blind to your experience. God is a God who hears and a God who sees. But the big statement is whether they are slave or free. God knows no partiality when he looks out at these people in the community. Being a slave or being a free person is irrelevant. Now in the ancient world, in the Greek and Roman world, it was a highly stratified social order. At the top of the tree were those who had both, were both freeborn and Roman citizens and especially those who have high dignitas. That was a quality that they came from the right families, they went to the right schools, they have had the right of appointments. They were the very elite at the top. Under that, there would be the males and the females. Males were higher social standing than the females. The next stage down are those who were free-born, born in freedom, but not Roman citizens. They didn't have the same legal rights, the same protections that Roman citizens did. Below that, the strata were those who had gained their freedom, but still had obligations to their former masters. They were still bound into the expectations of a patron-client relationship. Down again were those who were the slaves. They had no social standing, no voice, 
no capacity to resort to law to appeal to anyone. And Paul says, the Lord says that is all irrelevant. It counts for nothing in the life of the church. As you gather as a church household, you need to recognise in each other an equal standing. That is pretty transformative. When Paul then speaks to the masters, he takes that thought even further. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way as the Lord treats everyone, without partiality. In fact, Paul then says, what example do we get, what type of use of power and authority do we see in our ultimate Lord, the Lord Jesus, we see someone who doesn't use power and authority and status for, for, in a self-serving way. We see someone who taught and modelled that if you are to lead, you lead by the example of serving others. Service is the hallmark of true Christian use of power and authority. Paul says that is your example as masters. Follow the example of Christ. Do not threaten your slaves since you know that he is both their master and your master is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. John Christostom, who was a Greek-speaking church father, a few centuries later was commenting on this verse and he says as he sat with it, Paul is saying that masters should serve their slaves because that is what Christ would do. That is an incredibly subversive way of approaching it. So did Paul seek to dismantle the social apparatus of slavery? No, he didn't. In time, that was done and led by Christian leaders at a later stage, both in terms of within the Roman context but also within the modern slavery because they sought through, once we regard slaves as equal humans with equal dignity in the image and likeness of God and that slave or free counts for nothing before God, then why do we have slavery? And so it was that whole movement for abolition was undertaken. But let's go back and just focus on the line of thought that Paul has followed here. This whole section started back in chapter 5, verse 18. Paul started off with a negative, don't get drunk with wine. He's talking about the drinking parties that would follow a meal and all the behaviour that would come with that. And slaves would be required to serve in that space. Paul says, don't do that. Be filled by the Spirit. Now, throughout Ephesians, Paul has used the word you in the plural. We lose it in the English unless we resort to that use. Use be filled by the Spirit, all of you. But imagine this. Imagine you're a slave sitting in this household community of the, those who are followers of Christ, a church who's gathered together as brothers and sisters, and you are hearing this letter of Paul being read out where you are not listening around the corners, but you are hearing it. Remember how Paul started. Blessed be God and Father who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Not this group over there, but not that group. Not the masters or those who are regarded as important by a wider community. 
But every member of this church gathering has received that spiritual blessing. You are co-heirs with Christ. The inheritance of Christ is all of ours. And so Paul has continued how grace, the grace of God has been poured out on all people, slave and free. You go back and hear the passages about being the body of Christ and the gifts that are given and how we are all commissioned in this work is said to the slaves as much as anyone else. So this being filled with the Spirit includes the slaves, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They are leading worship in the church, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. And then the nub of it all, the final one that Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That one statement, closely tied to everything that follows, Paul applies to every level of the household. He, sub- he applies it to husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He applies it to fathers and children. Submit to one another. Serve one another. And he applies it to masters and slaves, no less. One of the comments after the morning service, the 8.30 service, was, wouldn't it be good if we had a line in the creed to talk about how there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile? There's not more to the creeds. There's statements of faith that we use in our 10.30 service that pick it up, that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. But this is an affirmation that shapes our identity and our life as a church and guides us how we are to go about being followers of Christ in a messy world. There are all manner of people in our wider community. I believe what this passage tells us is that we shouldn't be going out to all those uh, who are in other types of relationships and other forums and uh, forms of uh, social conventions that is changing around us and saying, well, when you stop being like that, then you're welcome to come and join us. I think we need to be saying as a church, we need to be recognising every one of us. These social distinctions do not give them the weight that our community gives them, but to recognise people. And it is messy, but it is what our belief is, that we are all this work in progress, the, the work of the Spirit in us, Still has a lot of work to be done. It had a lot of work to be done in Paul's day and it's got a lot of work to be done in our day. But the way we reach out and view each other equally as members of the family of God, the household of God, and the grace and generosity of what it means to be part of that household is truly transformative. Amen. looking to see what comes up next.